It is a wholly original movie at a time when originality is in short supply. That's from WenLayMobNews.com. We're talking about one hell of a movie. Everything, everywhere, all at once. A new film getting a lot of buzz right now in movie theaters. As far as our old movie is concerned, that's right. We're strapping it on. We're going on the saddle. Unforgiven 30th anniversary of Clint Eastwood's Academy Award winning classic. And also, by the way, as far as new movies are concerned, we'll squeeze in The Bad Guys, uh, starring Sam Walkwell, animated film. And as far as the wild card is concerned, Kyle Buchanan, you're going to love him, author of Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, the wild and true story of Mad Max Fury Road. If you want celebrities, you're not going to get them. If you want white, straight male authors, Authors Month continues, Cody. <laughs> Third one in a row. We are bringing it here this April, are we not? Uh, now we're back. We're back. We, we, we had Mayim Bialik on. That was weird. <laughs> now we're back. We're back in our sweet spot. And welcome back to you. How was the cruise? You and the family went a few days. Fantastic, right? Mm-hmm. It was great, man. Cruises. I know you're not a big cruise guy, but I'm a cruise guy. I love the, just the, it's like a one-stop shop for relaxation, good entertainment, good food. You never have to drive anywhere. It's just, you got a balcony. That That is your backyard for a week. Just the ocean. It's chef's kiss. It was a great time. Well, we were at ESPN. We did the Disney Cruise, which is like insanely expensive, but you get like maybe a fifty percent discount when you're at ESPN. So if you're if you work, yeah, they don't you got have no to casino. Do That's not happening. Yeah, it, it's just insane <laughs> how much you can spend there. But um, the problem for me was, and I don't know how this happened, but I had some sort of issue with the equilibrium. Like I got that seasick. So I'm sure you saw people on there. You get like a little dot they put behind your ear, and it somehow helps with the seasickness. We had such a large. We were on literally Royal Caribbean. Just came out with it, the largest cruise ship in the world. So of all the cruise ships you feel the least amount of that. There was one night of the five nights where I was like, is this the drink package or are we rocking? Like, so there was one night where it was a little rocky, but for the most part, you barely feel like you're even on a boat. Maybe just me, because I've been on a lot of cruises, so maybe like you would feel it more than I do, but I've never had any of the seasickness stuff. I honestly didn't see any, I know the patch you're talking about, yeah. but I didn't see anyone wearing that. But I don't know, maybe it's because the ship is so large, maybe because people who don't get like that don't go on cruises anymore. Yeah, not to hurt the cruise industry, but I remember the day I went back, I was filling on Mike and Mike, and it was me, Golik, and Gojo. And it was like 5.50. And I started to have like, like a panic attack. I was like, I got to get out of here. And they both kind of like smile. Yeah. Like, what else would you do, Rick? Like, what do you mean? I'm like, I, I don't know. I got to get out of here. Like, are you okay? I'm like, no. And like, are you going to throw up? I'm like, no, I'm not. I just, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. I guess it was because maybe the claustrophobia of the cruise. I don't know. Yeah. But I remember like, I had to get through that A segment. And I ran outside. And Dan Stanzik will remember this. He was like, are you all right? I'm like, I, I don't know if I can finish the show. And it was the weirdest thing. And I, I tweeted it. And after people go, no, if you've been on a cruise, that, that's not the weirdest thing in the world. I'm like, yeah. all right. Some people, when they get off, like for a couple of days, they like just feel a little wobbly, a little wobbly. For but sure. having said that, that I mean, the, my the, wife was saying that. My wife was saying that. So she was, she's, she's there with me. But hey, Royal Caribbean, get it where it's at. I, I also yeah. knew this would happen to me and Chris. We talked about winning time last week, and of course, the best episode so far is the one that aired a week ago. So of course, we did the episode last week because Chris was going on vacation. But I haven't episode, seen it yet. You can do it. You can say what happened. Uh, I was going to say, with, with apologies to my friend Sam Surface and others in the six one seven area code. Fuck Boston. It is a great episode because <laughs> it's all about Lakers. Celtics, and you go to the Boston Garden, and it shows how nasty the Garden was, and Red Auerbach and his arrogance, our guy Michael Chiklis, yeah. and the fact the Lakers are sticking it to him. Like, if, if you have any sort of disdain for Boston sports, you will love episode yes. seven of Winning Time. It was I'm great. Excited. So, uh, thanks again for everybody who listened to that episode. And also, I thanks also to saw Unforgiven, by the way. Just want to throw that little teaser in there. Yeah, I, I'm <laughs> thrilled that you saw it. So, I'm really excited that we're going to be talking about this today. You sent me the best text you've ever sent me when I know you've seen a film, which was simply. The Duck of Death, which, again, if you've seen Unforgiven, <laughs> that is so great. That's Gene Hackman, who can't pronounce Duke. He's talking about Richard Harris, who's jail, goes, oh, the Duck of Death. He goes, that's the Duke. What's that? That's the Duke of Death. <laughs> so we'll talk about the Duck of Death and all the rest of it. Um, I also want to thank everyone for listening to last week's episode. Uh, my man Cabby, of course, my man D, Micah Karg, Will Folger. They all really love the Chuck Kloshman interview, and you should all go read his book, The 90s. Having said that, two issues. One, Chuck didn't give me one name check during the interview. And two, a few hours afterwards, I texted him and just said, hey, thanks again. That was awesome. Posting Tuesday. No response. Not even a like. Ooh. So I was like, listen, I'm not going to ask you about Damian Lillard and the Blazers. Like, I'm just, I just wanted to let you know, thank you. Couldn't even give me a like. So I'm like, all right, I will go ahead and delete that. But you're a hell of a writer, and thank you for the time. I know you're a big, and I am as well. We're both like, we'll like a text every once in a while. But there are people that make the argument, I'd rather just have no response than liking it. Like, if you say, hey, thanks for coming on. Yeah. And his response is only to just hit that like button. Yeah. I don't know if I feel great about that interaction either. 
I hear you saying. It seems a little callous. Just kind of like, hey, thanks. It's just like, like kind of like, no time for this. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll appease you with this. But he didn't give you that, to your point. No. And also, uh, Susan Emery is very concerned, because in the conversation we had with Billy Gale, I mentioned how I peed like 15 times a day, and she's like, you got to go see a urologist. So I, I may yeah. get her out of that at some point. Because the fact that you said, Chris, you pee like four times a day, I'm like, yeah, I think you're, you're like, I think four to ten is normal. So I may have an overactive bladder here. I may have to go right. see a and doctor I, at some point. And I was thinking about it, like, I think I pee every few hours. So if you do the math on that, I'm probably peeing five times like i was probably a little short changing myself you probably a little like that's how we're doing a thing here we're trying to be we're, we're trying to be interesting if both of us just pee six times a day that's not interesting i said 20 but i'll be honest because after i said like that is a lot i counted it was 16 so i got you know what i, I may have an issue i may need to go see yeah. a proctologist I, I need i was i'm glad you did that because I, I i like the idea next time videotape them all. <laughs> I'm going to chart it. Like, I'm charting pitches. How long was the pee? Was it a good stream? What was the color like? That last one was kind of, there was a lot of starting and stopping in that last one. I right, right. Let's check. go. You kind of get, get a little giddy up there. Susan also pointing out one of the great scenes from A Fish Called Wanda, which I do want Cody to watch. It's been a few weeks now, but Fish Called Wanda. Ken's trying to kill me. It's so funny. We also had no text back from Tony Rock. I texted him. No response back from Chris uh, Rock's brother. I do his email as well. I think the moment has passed after the Colossian yeah. exchange. I'm not going to email I mean, the a guy. rock would still kill if we could be like we're having a rock brother on. That would still get ratings, but I get you. He probably gotten he probably got 7,200 of those exact texts from random people. And, and, and our big time thank you against Billy. He was fantastic on the pod. And an epic story today on the Dan Levitard show. Everyone should listen to it. Uh, this will now be Monday's episode. But he's talking about going to see Miguel Cabrera's 3,000th hit, which he's absolutely right. Chris, this is very rare now. Like that, he was bang on his point, which was that this isn't going to happen for a while. If the guys who are close, like Cano, he's not going to get there. Trout gets hurt a little too much to get There's three thousand. Uh, we I was looking at it today, like Manny Machado by yeah. age and the number. Like he's kind of like just the math. Like he could if he plays till he's forty. Like Manny Machado could get close. Right. But it's great that Billy was there and he's got epic storytelling around that. It was really funny. Although he crushed my guy Booney, but I, I know that's part of the part of the rage. Anyways, make sure you check that out. Once again, thanks to Billy. Before we get rolling with the reviews, happy birthday to my guy. Michael Corleone, Tony Montana, Frank Serpico, Sonny Wurzik, Big Boy Caprice, Lefty Ruggiero, Ricky Roma, Jimmy Hoffa, Joe Paterno, Jack Kevorkian, Phil Spector, Shylock, Richard III, Arthur Kirkland, Vincent Hanna, many more. Al Pacino is now 82 years of age. And what most shows would do is talk about, hey, what's your favorite Al Pacino performance? Give me your Mount Rushmore. But I know what's more entertaining for our audience. So how about this? Al Pacino turned 82 today. This is, of course, we're recording Monday. He's dating a girl who's 28 years old. We can appreciate Al Pacino's acting. How about the fact wow. there's a 54-year age gap with his girlfriend? I looked up who the girl is. She's a Kuwaiti-American producer in L.A., loves old guys. There was a source that said he goes, she always dates older, rich people. She dated a 60-year-old billionaire and previously dated Mick Jagger when the Rolling wow. Stones frontman was like 76. And now Al is getting in. And the big story here is this. Not just the 54-year age gap. But there's a picture that was taken of them, and the internet was set ablaze a week ago. And you can look up the article in the New York Post. Does Al Pacino have a Shrek iPhone cover? <laughs> oh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> so they, they, they contacted his daughter, Olivia, who's 21. I'm sure she's thrilled, by the way. Dad's dating a 28-year-old. But they asked Olivia, and she goes, yeah. Uh, didn't give any, didn't give any context. Just goes, yep, that's my dad's screen cover. So I don't know if he's a big Mike Myers guy, just a big Shrek guy, loves ogres. But Al Pacino is repping Shrek on his phone. I kind of want Pacino's worst three movies, according to Adam Anvers. Yeah, I mean, you can't do that on his birthday, can you? I can't do it on his birthday, but I'll give you. Eighty-eight minutes is terrible. Uh, Righteous Kill with De Niro is awful. Uh, those are the two that jump out to me. But there's another one, too. Uh, the gambling one is not great with McConaughey. Oh, that's a good one. Get out of here. All for the money or something? I don't know. I, I, it's obviously not a classic movie, but I've seen that. I like that movie. There's one that's called, like, Thank Hide you. and Seek. By the way, like this, is my Al, this is my Al Pacino getting wished happy birthday. Thank you. That's terrible, Al Pacino. I don't know why I busted that out. I don't know why I stopped the show just for me to do that terrible impression. The thing is with Pacino, though, like Frank Caliendo's been on the pod. He does a great Pacino. The key with his Pacino is it's like Pacino's chewing gum. So it's always kind of like a, yeah, yeah. Ah, and, it uh, slow, and then it gets loud. Yeah, and he said, he said the key is that because Pacino is very observant, but he's almost like a little too excited by things. So it's like if you yeah. flip a light off, he's like, oh, sorcery. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I love how these all our impressions just become Frank Caliendo's impression. No We're question. Doing it's Frank an impression. <laughs> right. It's an impression of Frank doing Pacino. But you should look up <laughs> Caliendo's impression. Wow. And you can listen to it once again here on Cinefy. I think I had Frank on 
pre-Lebitard uh, incarnation. No. But is, we, we no, had I together. had Frank. We did Frank together. Frank was great. Yeah. He was, yeah, I mean, his impressions were unreal. All right. Let's talk a little movie, shall we? Um, we've got lots to discuss here. We'll get to Unforgiven in just a second. Like I said, Kyle Buchanan is fantastic as well. But I want to start out with Everything Everywhere All at Once. Which is in this era now where so many times people are streaming things, right? Hey, when is it going to be on video or on demand? This is actually getting some good buzz in the movie theaters. This is a good time actually for movies at the theaters. The Northman, I'm really excited to see. $90 million epic about Vikings starring Alexander Skarsgård, Nicole Kidman, Willem Dafoe, Ethan Hawke. You got Nick Cage's new movie, which looks fantastic. The Unbearable Weight of Staggering Genius. And this film, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Here's the story. An aging Chinese immigrant is swept up in an insane adventure where she alone can save the world by exploring other universes connecting with the lives she could have led. So I was initially reluctant because I said, what the hell is this? And someone goes, oh, it's like this science fiction comedy. And I go, well, I'm not really big into sci-fi unless it's 2001. And the comedy, it sounds a little forced. And then I saw the trailer and I said, okay, it looks kind of bananas. And then I saw the reviews and 97% Rotten Tomatoes. I said, okay, I got to go see this. And I don't want to spoil any of it. I want everyone to go see it because it's just bananas. It doesn't always work, but when it does, it's amazing. So here's what I can tell you. It's audacious. It's wildly imaginative. It's got rapturous images. There's visceral editing. It's bold. It's bright. Michelle Yeoh is a great actress. Um, it's very rare that movies like this get recognized by the Oscars because it's so early in the year. But I hope Michelle Yeoh gets nominated for an Academy Award. She's an international star of, of renown, and her performance is amazing. Now, after 132 minutes, it does get a little exhausting because as that story synopsis says, she's trafficking through multiple universes. Like, it's it's a bonkers movie. It literally is just an aging Chinese couple trying to pay their taxes, and Jamie Lee Curtis, speaking of A Fish Called Wanda, plays IRS agent, and then all of a sudden, boom, they're in a different universe and then a different universe, and now there's some sorcery going on, speaking of, and kung fu action and fighting, but it's also... A mother-daughter story. So they're throwing everything in the kitchen sink at this movie. Wow. And, it, and it doesn't always work. I mean, after 132 minutes, it's exhausting. It's not entirely successful. But for sheer chutzpah, and again, the passion of it, you got to go see it. We're going to talk to Kyle Buchanan about Mad Max Fury Road. And there's a quote in there from Ty Burr about how that film was enough to restore your faith in movies. You will understand after seeing this movie why people feel so excited about movies. Because it's a reason to go back to the theater. And it's just dazzling eye candy. And it has genuine warmth. It's ultimately about bridging generations. It's a mother-daughter story of acceptance. I'll give it three and a half Maple Leafs. I wish I could say more, but I don't want to. I'll do one spoiler. Okay, I'll give you 10 seconds. It's about a 30-second spoiler. It's one spoiler here. Everything, everywhere, all at once. There's one scene which is absolutely ridiculous, and it's disturbing and really funny, involving butt plugs. Because they need butt plugs to regenerate. Blue. Yeah. Classic ad name. Yeah. No, no, my buddy Ari Pollock texted me, he goes, gross, but incredibly funny scene. So butt plugs do figure prominently in one scene. End of spoiler review. <laughs> Go check out this movie. Uh, Max Weiss of Baltimore Magazine. There's lots to recommend about everything, everywhere, all at once. But the film's frenetic busyness wore me down. Come on. Jackie K. Cooper says, sometimes you get it and sometimes you don't. And I just didn't get this movie. Boo. Love Michelle Yeoh, but she led me down the rabbit hole with this one. All right, well, a couple of reviews there Chris got were not as flattering, but again, 97% Rotten Muse and 94% audience reviews. How about this? Ambulance is a new film with Jake Gyllenhaal and it's directed by Michael Bay, who's a real hack, right? Just makes these generic action movies. I'd rather watch an episode of Baywatch than like a Michael Bay movie. And this film, through sheer word of mouth, everything ever all once is actually climbing in the box office and past Ambulance, which is pretty much dead on arrival considering how that budget was so go check it out quick one here the bad guys this is like tarantino for kids sam rockwell playing a fox which does make you think about other actors who have played foxes normally jason bateman played a fox in zootopia who's the better fox michael j fox ever played a fox michael j fox i don't think he's ever played a fox he did play Stuart little played a mouse but i don't believe he's ever played a fox um but rockwell fantastic very cunning mark maron love his podcast i went back and listened to gilbert godfried on mark maron's podcast wth it was really funny from a few years back mark maron playing a snake there's a running gag about a piranha and flatulence which is very critical but essentially these guys are the bad guys they pull off heist they are the criminals, they're the crooks, and yet somehow, someway, they're going to try to find their heart of goodness after they're arrested. One big thing this is teaching kids, for Cody's four-year-old daughter and my four boys who I took, $64 for the movie tickets. It was 34 for the popcorn and slice. You're looking at about 86 bucks to go check out the bad guys. But never trust, every time you're watching an animated film, never trust a character with a British accent. All right, there's my spoilers. <laughs> I think, like, that's what, this is what they're teaching kids. British accent, you go, mm, 
Oh, bueno. I'm not trusting yeah. this character. I'm giving uh, everything everywhere all at once. Three and a half Maple Leafs. I will give the bad guys three Maple Leafs. I did enjoy that film. All right. Now we're going to get to the old. And I'm so pumped that Cody saw it because mm-hmm. it is old. Unforgiven. Retired Old West gunslinger William Money reluctantly takes on one last job with the help of his old partner Ned Logan and a young man, the Schofield Kid. I had not seen Unforgiven in at least 20 years, and since it's the 30th anniversary, I figured we'd go back and watch it again. Two hours long, which is interesting to me because these movies you generally feel like are like now two and a half, 2.45, Dances with Wolves over three hours, mm-hmm. right? Western. So it's actually a fairly economical, efficient pacing movie. I, here's the first thing I love about it. I remember the opening I loved. It's just this wide, beautiful shot, great piano score, and it's just a script, a a crawl which is going across very quick, but it just tells you a little bit about William Money, and that is actually what ends the movie as well. There's a different crawl, but that same shot of I didn't get that crawl. I remember rewinding back to it. I like read it. I'm like, I don't know any of these characters. That that, that went all over my head, the beginning writing and the end. It's just introducing, here's this character of violent and intemperate disposition. And at the end, it kind of says, you know, why was this woman ever with him? We don't know, and yet there was faith that brought them together. You didn't get that essence of it. Okay, I didn't. I missed it. I mean, that, that's not me, though. I just remember being like, damn, there was something at the beginning and then at the end this, and I'm like, I'm not, I, I feel like there's a moment. I should be saying to myself, oh, but I didn't. Well, I think a lot, <laughs> a lot of I the guess film... I have to actually read. That's the part. I don't think I right. actually read the words. That's it. The whole film is about fate, right? So you don't know why this guy, a violent and intemperate disposition, a gunslinger, William Money, he's killed women and children. Why would this nice woman ever want to marry this guy? And then you go on this journey where you see he's tried to be someone different. I mean, he's a pig farmer, for God's sakes. That's where Eastwood is rumbling around the pigs. He's pathetic. He looks like scum. Yeah. He, he's trying to shoot the thing, can't shoot the can. Like, oh my God, it has been. And at one point, you know, it really shows his vulnerability. The scene where he's talking to Morgan Freeman is Ned. And he's like, oh, they have these bugs coming out of their eyes, Ned. Like, oh my God, like he's scared. He's terrified. He's going to die. This is his reckoning. And he goes back to being the old gunslinger, William Money, fearless, vicious, and yet it's not to be celebrated. This isn't a movie where you go, yeah, he's back to being the bad guy. It's like, wow, his soul was corrupted and it's blackened again, and this is who he is. So that last crawl comes back. I think, again, the story's about fate, that no matter what, he can't escape his fate. He is destined to be this guy as much as he tries to escape it, just as for I, some I, reason, fate drew him to his it, late wife. I took it more as he didn't want to go back to this life, but it's just, he's so honorable to his friend that he's like I'm gonna go back and do it for him like I don't wanna fate isn't bringing me back like I I felt like for him there he didn't wanna go back and do that it was like they wronged Morgan Freeman so I'm gonna go back and get my friend justice yeah, it's definitely about themes like loyalty and, like you said, frontier justice. But I think that's what makes it great. Other movies like this, like Dirty Harry, is about a guy who like relishes all the violence and just you know getting his comeuppance on these criminals. This is a guy going, "Hey, I don't want to, but I'm reluctantly being drawn back to the fray." There's no joy in the violence. That's why one of the great reviews, I think it was Rebecca Keegan, talked about Scorsese's The Irishman and said, "This is Scorsese's Unforgiven." I'm like, "Yes, what a great line!" Because Unforgiven is about Clint, who made all these westerns in which people just murdered everybody and especially against Native Americans and just relish the experience. And this is a film in which he made, again, he directed it, he produced it, he starred in it. It's almost like an apology or a reckoning or a revisiting about all those other films that he made and really shows the cost of violence. I mean, there's a couple lines of dialogue which are very, very critical in which the one kid is just, you know, drinking away and he just can't overcome it. And he goes, hell of a thing killing a man. Take away all he's got and all he's ever going to have. I, I mean, an incredible line from yeah. David Webb Peoples wrote the script. And also when he kills Hackman, when Hackman says, I don't deserve this. And he goes, deserves got nothing to do with it. Again, goes yeah, back to Yeah, I wrote that fate. line down. What is that really like? It, it, but you are killing him because he <laughs> deserves it. Like, but, I, I didn't again, get that line. But again, it goes back to fate. It's fate versus free will. It deserves got nothing to do with it. I've lived a good life. I don't deserve it. Well, this is beyond you. This is about okay. nature. This is about the universe. It's not about what you deserve. It's just about what the universe will yield. And in this instance, you're going to die. So this movie was in the eight, late 1800s, right? 1880, I believe. And I, I'm not a big, shocking to people. I haven't watched a ton of Westerns, especially like the Westerns I've watched have been more like mockument, like mocking movies. So like I was longing to live in that time. I'm like, wait, so they just have horses. That's how they get. Like, like there's, it was so, it was just blowing my mind in there. I'm like, they have to just get on a horse to go somewhere. And then like Hackman's building his own house. Yes. Like if, if you wanted a house in the 1800s, you had to build it yourself. 
Yeah, I think that's an aspect to it as well, especially when you think about indoor plumbing. In that era, I'm like, who the hell wants to be a part of that? It's like, what did you think, though, about Morgan Freeman? Because him and Clint Eastwood obviously have had a great relationship, wonderful cast. I think that you can really sense their chemistry. A couple of gunslingers getting back together, yeah. although they're both a little long in the tooth now. I like their chemistry. Morgan Freeman always just has that. Like, Morgan Freeman was Morgan Freeman in this role. Clint Eastwood, I have a little bit of a hot take here. I really enjoyed this movie. Yeah. Is Clint Eastwood a great actor? He's kind of too like, uh, like my eyes are squinting. You know I'm, what? I'm yeah, at, I have emotion in what I'm saying. I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know what I mean? It's just, I, I just don't feel like there's a lot of range with Clint Eastwood. I feel like Clint Eastwood is just always like, what do you mean? What do you mean I got to do that? I don't know. I just, I, but I, I, think was, it's I was watching it. I was like, this is one of the best actor directors of ever. And yeah. I'm like, I get it on the directing part. This yeah. is a great movie. The acting part, I was kind of like, maybe a little overrated. No, I like your take. Listen, I will agree with you. Better director than actor. 100% I'll co-sign that. Yeah. And I do hear you. Like, he definitely plays that tough guy a lot. But I think when he goes away from it, it's notable. Million Dollar Baby, we're going to do at some point. My man Paul yeah. Carr loves the movie as much as I do. That is really him stretching as an actor. Seems like Clint crying and trying to overcome uh, the situation involving Hillary Swank. But to your point, yes, he has definitely played a lot of characters. Gruff, terse, tough guys. There's not a ton of range with Clint. He also, at one point in the movie, is just, like, galloping on his horse, and something happens that he's not happy with, and he goes, oh, shit. And I was like, people said, oh, shit, in the 1800s, <laughs> like, in the late 1800s. That just seemed like a more modern phrase that someone in the 1800s wouldn't say. Probably, yeah, probably like, oh, dag, dag gown it or something like that. Dag gown it? I don't know. It was just like, he was like, oh, shit. I'm like, that, that line made it through. You made an excellent point when you texted me about the cost of killing a person. Let's get into that. How much was Clint willing to do this for? I did the math. I was like, $1,000? This must have been a million dollars. So I just typed into Google how much was $1,000 in 1880, because I believe that's when this exactly happened. And it was, it said, I think, like $32,000, <laughs> which is a lot more than 1000 So, like, there is some math there. But I started thinking... I mean, I'm like, would I kill someone for? I'm not killing anyone for. He was offered a. There was a for people that haven't seen it. There was a thousand dollar reward on these two cowboys that did something terrible. So Clint Eastwood leaves. They, his they, two they cut young up these whores. They cut up house, this whore. all alone for like two weeks to go make thirty grand. Look, I thirty grand is a lot of money to me. I would love thirty grand, but I don't know if I'm leaving my two kids alone, traveling miles on horseback, and going to risk my life into a town that doesn't want any guns, and I'm going to kill people for thirty k. I mean, I was just like, I was expecting it to be way more money. And, and as I said to you via text, what I would have done if I was Jamie Wolvett, who plays the Schofield kid, or Morgan Freeman, what those guys did, they kept getting advances. They kept screwing yes. these whores in the middle of nowhere. Like, like Clint Eastwood gets his ass kicked by Hackman. It was an right. amazing scene. And he's recovering and hallucinating. And while he's doing that, what are his buddies doing? They're banging the whores. Like they, yeah. The whole yeah. point of this movie is a whore got cut up, and these guys are going to avenge what happened to her. But in the meantime, how about a little roll in the hay? Like, yeah. <laughs> so the whores that were offering this reward for justice for their friend were like, when they came into town, they're like, hey, you want to you know, a little freebie? Since you're here to you know, avenge our friend, here's a little freebie. And Clint Eastwood's like, no, my wife died 30 years ago. I told her I would never. It's like, Clint, she'd be okay with you doing this. Yeah, that was amazing when Morgan Freeman kind of says to him, and he, <laughs> Morgan Freeman on the great lines, he goes, what, you just use your hand? Like, he, yes. This is a masturbation love, joke. I love the idea of in the 1880s, them talking about, there's something about it, in 1880, masturbation being talked about with two, like, that was like, this is how two cowboys in 1880 ask each other if they jerk off. I just I did not see that coming in 1880. I don't know why I thought in 1880 people were masturbating, but I just it was funny to me in that context. Especially the oh, fact it's, it's the woman who's been cut up. And then at the up. end, you mentioned Delilah. So at the end, Clint has like this relation. Delilah's the one that got cut up, the yes. whore that got cut up. So her face is all scarred, and yeah. she thinks no one wants her anymore. Yeah, yeah. And he's like trying to make her feel better. He's like, no, I don't want any, but it's because of my late wife. It's not because if, if I wanted it, it'd be with you. He was trying to make her feel better. Yeah. At the very end, spoiler alert, when Clint Eastwood finally d comes back, get rides, and now he's done his thing. He's riding off into the sunset. He has this moment where he like looks back at Delilah. I thought he was gonna like. I wanted Delilah to come with Clint. Let's start a new life together. Come on, Delilah. No, he's, he's still. And by the way, it is his late wife. We know that, but she doesn't know that. He just goes, "I can't be with you on account of my wife." And he, she says, "Oh, where's she?" He goes, "Oh, she's back home, whatever." So she thinks his wife is still alive. So that's why she uh, can't go with him. I just wanted him to give the look, like, "Come on, honey." No, no, and then he's an adult. Her hop on the back and they ride off. I would have been like, "That's how it ends." 
No, because because on in his mind, you're right. He says, "Hey, I I want to do it with you," and she's like, "Oh, because I'm freaking nasty and disgusting. I'm this gruesome beauty." No, no, it's not because of that. It's just on account of my wife. But he does not see my late wife. She goes, "Oh, she's back home." So that's why he can't run off in the sunset. I know you, the sentimentalist, and you wanted to see that happening, but that wasn't going to happen. One last thing that happened in this movie that I don't think ever actually happens. This is back in the same conversation of a few months ago. There was a sex scene where someone threw everything off a desk, and I was like, yeah. nobody ever actually does that in real life. In this movie. There was a, a scene where one guy was scared shitless, like the one writer guy. He was Saul Rubin, a Canadian guy playing W.W. Beauchamp. And he pee, and he gets so scared that he urinates himself. And Awful. you see the pee drip. Like, that doesn't... I feel like in my most scariest moment... Maybe I'm wrong, and I hope I never get to a point where I have to experience this. But I just don't think if I was, like, the ultimate, as scared as I could be... I don't think I'm peeing. I think I'm still holding it. I think I'm saying I'm as scared as I've ever been, but I'm still controlling my bladder. Like I just that's I, I call, call me naive. That's how I think I would handle the most scariest situation in my life. I would not pee myself. It's something we don't want to put to the test because, like you said, we no. don't want to. If we had to call Ron McGill, like, all right, can we get a wild boar in front of Cody and see if he right. pisses himself? Like, we don't want to do that. But I'll. I mean, if if it's like a wild boar, probably won't kill me. I'll try it. Let's call Ron. Okay, we'll see if we can Ron McGill from Zoom Miami to set this up. See if we can scare, not scare him shitless, get him to scare him till he can pee himself. What did you think yeah. Richard Harris's English Bob playing? The, again, never trust a guy with an accent, arrogant guy, big accent, you know, very highfalutin. How about Gene Hackman? He won an Academy Award as little Bill Daggett. What did you think of his performance? He won an Academy for that? I yeah, thought he was best good. Supporting Gene act- Hackman's always good. I, I like Gene Hackman. He, he's... He's he's got a little Morgan Freeman to him that it, it just to me always looks like Gene Hackman, but it's like it's hard to f- put him as these characters because I just see them as like, but I don't know about that. I mean, an award-winning performance. That's where like I was gonna say he was fine in it, but the fact that he won the award, that's you know maybe it was a slow year. Uh, that's what I'm gonna say. I'm very gonna quickly gonna look up who he won the Oscar against because I, I do remember that year when he won. It was Best Supporting Actor. It was the second Oscar that he won. He won previously for The French Connections. That was 1972. Well, you're not gonna like who he beat now because honestly, it was a pretty loaded year. And now that now that you said it, because I loved him in the movie, the great performance. But you know what? As I'm looking at this list, I, I might put him fifth on the most deserving. Ready for this? Pacino won that year for Best Actor for Scent of a Woman, which is not one of his best films. Colonel Frank Slade. But, of course, he was long overdue. It was his eighth nomination. But Gene Siskel, I was Ebert. Roger Ebert that year, and I agree with him, goes, you know what? He's actually better in another movie. Al got nominated for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor that year. Incredibly rare. Wow. He was up for Supporting Actor for Glenn Geary, Glenn Ross. My favorite play. I've seen it on Broadway twice, and he's awesome in it. He probably should have won for Supporting Actor for Glenn Geary, Glenn Ross. That'd be my one. Number two, you're going to love this one. Jack Nicholson, A Few Good Men. Iconic wow. performance. Great. Right? You can't handle the truth. Now, Jay Davidson in The Crying Game is a great performance. I know you haven't seen it, but that, very famously, she is playing a woman who Stephen Ray falls in love with and then pulls her drawers down and sees it's a dude. And it's like, oh, my God. So that was a big controversy that year because if you hadn't seen the film, you thought she was a woman. And then the nominations came out and you go, best supporting actor. I'm like, wait, is she a guy? I'm like, uh. And I would be fascinated to watch it again now with, you know, obviously more focus on transgenders and, and just that whole, you know, climate now. But at the time, hell of a performance. And I give that three. Four, Billy Crystal is now doing Mr. Saturday Night on Broadway. I, I could go into the city and go see it. Again, my guy, Cabby, we love Mr. Saturday Night. David Pamer is actually the best part of that movie. He plays Billy Crystal's long-suffering brother. Billy Crystal made that film, Cody, to win Oscars, right? He hosted the Oscars eight times. Yeah. He wanted to win an Oscar. He got completely snubbed. Didn't get nominated for picture, director, actor. You know who got nominated? David Pamer. He plays his brother. He got nominated. He's the best part of Mr. Saturday Night. He played his brother. So if you rank it, I would go. And Hackman won? And Hackman won. <laughs> So it should go Pacino, Glenn Gregg, and Ross, Nicholson, A Few Good Men, Jay Davidson, Never Better, The Crying Game, David Paper, Mr. Saturday Night, and then Gene Hackman for Unforgiven. Was, was the Academy like a sucker for Westerns or something? Is that it? I think, I think it just felt like it was Clint's year. Like, if you look at Best Picture that year, but I love, again, it's not a great film. I just love Al. Scent of a Woman was up for Best Picture. Okay. A Few Good Men. Very famous, but very popular film. Howard's End, period piece. Your wife would like it. My wife would like it. And The yeah. Crying Game. I'd go The Crying Game. A hell of a movie. But again, I'd probably get Unforgiven Best Picture. But Crying Game is great. Actor, again, Pacino, 1% of a woman. Denzel should have won for Malcolm X, but Al had never won, so this is how this happens. Actress, nothing for Unforgiven. Supporting actor, we just mentioned. Supporting actress, whatever. Director. Now, Neil Jordan, again, The Crying Game, love it. James Ivory, Howard's End. Okay. Robert Altman, The Player, great film. Bill Simmons just did it on The Rewatchables. Hilarious. Marty Brest, Sent of a Woman, no. Clint for Unforgiven. So if he redid it, Clint should win for Unforgiven for directing. Hackman should not have won for supporting actor. Yeah. And it makes things a little bit a little bit different. Original screenplay, I'm praying for David Webb Peoples won. We're going to talk to 
Kyle Buchanan later about Mad Max Fury Road. George Miller did Lorenzo's Oil. He was nominated for original screenplay that year. George Miller and Nick Enright for Lorenzo's Oil. So who the hell knows? George Miller maybe should have won an Oscar for that movie. Instead, it was David Webb Peoples. Hell of a script. It just hit me. They were splitting that pot three ways. They were. He was killing someone for ten thousand dollars. Clint Eastwood was killing someone for ten thousand dollars. Yes, this is bad. This bad business. That's decision. a great point because at one point the kids, because Morgan Freeman wants to leave, and the kid gets yeah. mad because you're not getting your share. And Clint goes, oh, "Don't listen to me. You're getting your share." So Ned basically screwed a bunch of wars and then didn't <laughs> didn't do the job. He didn't end up dying in the end, anyways. But he he would have yeah. he would have still got ten grand out of it. <laughs> the Duck of Death. Good movie, though. Good movie, man. Other than the one, what was the one a couple weeks ago that I watched that I, I didn't like? All these movies I watch because of this, I, I always like. So that's a good thing. Yeah, I love that you're going back and enjoying these. The one you didn't like was The Bubble. You didn't get through it. Judd Apatow. Yeah. 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 By the way, still trying to get him this month. So let's try to get Judd Apatow on the podcast. All the older month. movies. All the older movies we watch, though, are good. Yeah, dude, I, I'm so pumped. The, the biggest thing out of this entire podcast has been you have now seen Dog Day Afternoon and Unforgiven and liked them both a lot. Like oh, that, yeah. Dude, I, I have yeah. done my job, and I'm hoping you still watch A Fish Called Wanda at some point. Ken is trying to kill me. All right, it's time now for Kyle Buchanan wildcard time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A real pleasure bringing in Kyle Buchanan. He's the author of Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, the wild and true story of Mad Max Fury Road. It's one of the best films of the last decade and one of the greatest action movies of all time, and it's a phenomenal book. Oral history. Kyle, first and foremost, congrats on writing a hell of a book for a hell of a movie. Thank you, Adnan. I like that intro. <laughs> yeah, it's... um. There's so much to dive into with regards to your book because it was just so revelatory in so many ways, particularly the fact that Shalise Theron did not get along with the leading man, Tom Hardy. And page 236, as George Miller says, many years ago I had the privilege of working with Jack Nicholson on Witches of Eastwick where he was playing the devil. And he said, you know, we think as actors we don't bring it home at night. We think we just leave it in the trailer and we walk off set. But the truth is, if you're doing your job properly, you do bring it home. And that was one of the dynamics that was happening in the film. Said Matt Taylor, you got someone like Tom who's hilarious and his late and very method in his performance just in sheer personality there was always going to be a clash why was there such friction in your estimation between Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy two great actors who gave two great performances I mean it's one of the big questions of the book isn't it uh I would say it's probably two things one of it one of those two things is exactly what's described in that last quote they just have very different methods they are like you said Phenomenal actors, uh, incredible star quality that's evident on screen, but they have extremely different methods for getting there. You know, Charlize is very professional, very by the book. You have her come uh, to set on time. Uh, she will, if she needs to cry from the left eye, she will nail that in every take. And Tom's method is very different. He does not always show up on time. That's a source of conflict. And when he does get there, he has an acting method that he sort of describes as failing towards the truth, where he will do really crazy out there things uh, in every take until he learns what the performance isn't. So that will get him to something that is hopefully very kind of alive and interesting and uh, unexpected. But that's not always, uh, you know, for, for, a, for a patient movie star, uh, uh, that sort of method is going to be a little trying. So I think I think both of them, uh, there was a little bit of rubbing each other the wrong way just in their approaches. But then also we have to remember, this was not an easy film to make. They were out there in the desert working on a movie that was drafted almost entirely in storyboards. That's part of why the movie looks so amazing, but it also left them feeling very unmoored because they were shooting these micro second shots uh, that were not what they're used to. They didn't know if they were, you know, if these shots when they were stitched together would make any sense or if the scene would make sense. So I think when you're that frustrated and you're that cut off from what you consider to be uh, typical civilization, you just start 
losing it a little bit and, and maybe taking out some of that anxiety on each other. Yeah, Jason Bolton is quote, I could spend nine hours and 50 minutes on set and not get an image some days. Like, they weren't doing a scene, as you said. It was just a 10-second shot or a five-second shot. Like, oh, my God. I couldn't imagine the patience. And at one point, you know, <laughs> Kelly Marshall says, at a certain point, I remember saying to Tom, when things are getting particularly fraught, here's a headline you don't want. You killed George Miller. It's so stressful <laughs> yeah. out there. You don't want to be that guy. And for Miller to say at one point, I can't stop thinking about what would have been like if Heath was here and he was still alive. That's a great what if. I mean, it's an incredible film, but imagine if it was Heath Ledger and not Tom Hardy. Yeah, and you know, I'm really fascinated by those casting what ifs. There's a really long casting chapter in the book that explores all the other people who auditioned or were thought about or met with George Miller. And it's kind of crazy to think about how different the feel of the movie might be if, say, Eminem starred as Mad Max because he was, you know, in talks at one point. Only sticking point was he wanted it to shoot in Detroit. And uh, as you can imagine, that is a no-go. Not, not, uh, not a lot of, uh, you know, big, expansive deserts in Detroit. But if, uh, <laughs> if they managed, then maybe Eminem could have starred. And they also looked that at people. That is shocking. Eminem. That is yeah. shocking. I mean, imagine it, you know. I, they also looked at people like Gal Gadot for Furiosa. In fact, she got pretty far until they decided to just offer it to Charlize and and. There were actresses who came in to play the wives, the five sex slaves, who went on to become some of our most famous movie stars like Margot Robbie and Jennifer Lawrence. So it is really crazy. I'm, I'm always sort of tantalized by those what ifs. In fact, one of the storyboard artists showed me a storyboard that they had to make when they were trying to entice Eminem, where they replaced all of their storyboard images of Max with a guy with blonde hair. Yeah, that's a quote from Mark Sexton, page 70. I'm kind of glad it didn't happen. Eminem, really? Whole different bent there. And the feminist story behind Mad Max Fury Road might have taken a bit of a hammering if he'd played the role. I think he's right. It wouldn't have worked out if it was Marshall Mathers. It definitely would have been a different vibe. Uh, you know, it, it's a funny thing because they really had this story and these images thought out for, as you can tell when you read it, you know, about 15 years. They started storyboarding this at the turn of the century. So it's astonishing to go back and look at some of those sequences where, you know, shot for shot for shot, this is the movie that you know in 2015. But there are those X factor things that, you know, putting a real human being in front of a lens will change from the vision that you had. I mean, even Charlize as Furiosa, Charlize is the one who decided that Furiosa's head should be shaved. Charlize came up with one of the most iconic shots of the movie, which is when Furiosa drops to her knees in the desert and lets out this yell. So you have to wonder, okay, you know, maybe by and large, the movie would look like it looked if Eminem was playing uh, Max. But those intangible things, those X factor things, those notes that make their way into the movie and produce something really iconic, it would have gone in definitely a different direction. The actors are excellent, and there's a lot to appreciate about the performances, the vision, the storytelling, but really, it's the action. Page 182, as George Miller says, through evolution, our survival has been based on reading things as accurately as possible. And as Tom Hardy says, what George has nailed that makes me so excited, and Chris Nolan does the same thing as well, is he takes the audience and says, right, here's as close to it as you can possibly get. And in order to do that, we're going to actually flip trucks. We're actually going to do these stunts. And Brendan McCarthy, this is an amazing reference. To me, the sheer poetry of George Miller doing vehicular destruction. It's a bit like Jackson Pollock doing his drip paintings, or William Butler Yeats writing Easter 1916. <laughs> There's something about George Miller doing vehicular destruction that rises to the level of art. This is why the film is so great, Kyle. These, I, I still can't get over watching that in the theater and watching the continuous action in those cars. It was incredible what they were able to do. It made me realize that I think we're all kind of setting our bars too low. You know, I mean, I like a good superhero movie, uh, you know, a, a normal studio action movie. I'll watch a Fast and Furious any day of the week and enjoy it. But don't we kind of all sense in the back of our heads that what we're watching is not for real, that it's, you know, made in a computer, it's, it's pixels, you know, it's not actual cars doing any of that. I mean, and sometimes it is, but you've synthesized so many of the fake shots that you're not clocking the thing that's happening for real. And that's why, you know, even though special effects are used very smartly and judiciously in Fury Road, you know that you're seeing this shit happen for real. You know that the stuntmen are falling from these cars and that these cars are crashing into each other for real. And it produces a feeling that's just an increasingly short supply.
What's so great about your book is it's it's true storytelling and that you go from this hellacious journey. I mean, it feels like he's Coppola making Apocalypse Now. Like it's, you know, on again, off again. When can we get the budget? Who's the star? Mel Gibson? Nope, Mel's got some issues. He's not going to be a part of it. Uh, we go, like you said, all the casting what ifs. And then finally the film gets made and it's arduous and it's torturous. But then you get the reviews. And these reviews are unbelievable. I, me I remember going to see the film and that's why. Like I remember I saw the trailer and I go, it looks pretty good. And I saw the reviews, I got to go see this movie. And I'm glad you included these because these reviews, I remember these vividly. One of my favorite film critics, Ty Burr of Boston Globe. I'll never forget this one. It's enough to renew your faith in movies. Kyle, people went and drove to see this movie because of the critics. This is an example where the critics were really important. I know it wasn't a huge hit, as you point in the book, but it was a solid hit, and the critics loved it. And you don't usually get that in that genre. I mean, the fact that it not only got those glowing reviews, but ended up on best of the year list and then best of the decade list, and that year, the Oscars got it right, nominated it for 10 Oscars. It won six, including Best Picture and Best Director, which you never see an action movie in those categories. You know, I, I do think that since the movie has come out, it has only grown and grown and grown. Like the audience for it has found it, even if they didn't find it at the time. But definitely the critical reaction at the time was of the, uh, of the sort of, we haven't seen anything like this in a long time. We may never see anything like this. And this is a precious movie that we've got to celebrate while we've got it. All right, now just random stuff, which is really interesting from your book. Page 294, Mark Goldnick. There was also a cutscene where Max has a premonition that he's pregnant. B.J. <laughs> Bolton, and he gives birth to himself. Leslie Vanderwald, I never quite understood that scene. It was like a hallucination or something. I don't even know. How crazy is that? There would have been a scene where he gave birth to himself. Listen, if I could get my hands on that footage specifically, that's my holy grail. I do hope <laughs> someone emails it to me someday. I'm putting it out there. Yeah. I mean, Tom Hardy giving birth to himself. This is a movie that's already pushing it thematically, uh, visually, in every possible way. But maybe that would have been pushing it a little too far. That's my, that's my guess as to why it's not in the actual movie. The moment where the Oscars go, I don't know if we can nominate this for 10 moments. This guy does give birth to himself. It's a little too much now. Page 76. We need to go back to the casting. Ronna Crest, there was this urban myth going around at the time about a first date where the girl goes to the bathroom in the guy's house and someone ends up leaving her poop on his dressing table. It was not a true story, but several people told that same story as if it was their story. How ridiculous is that? Well, yeah, and I, you know, that points to how untraditional that casting process was. They weren't just reading you know, lines from the movie. In fact, in most cases, they weren't reading any lines from the movie. They were coming in telling some sort of story about the craziest thing that ever happened to them or, you know, all these other prompts because he wanted, George Miller wanted to get a sense of who is this person? Could I spend a lot of time with them? What are they bringing to the table just as a personality? Because this is not a dialogue driven movie for the most part. So what are they going to have if they're just, you know, in a shot in the you know, background, not saying anything? Are they still going to be able to project, you know, a certain kind of life force? Something else, which I'm glad they took out, because in McCarthy's movie pitch, Max arrived at a giant castle where the man he delivered the package to then opened it to reveal a vial of pure sperm. This man's ultimate intention was to impregnate a teenage girl he had been holding captive, a twisted bid to continue the human race in the face of near extinction. I don't think that would have played well again on the big screen. No, but you know, it's interesting because the, the theme of these, uh, of these questions that you're asking me in this little lightning round is these moments where they push things maybe a little too far and then had to draw back. And I think sometimes you do have to do that. Or at least you get a crazy pitch like that one from McCarthy, who is one of the film's co-writers. And you recognize, as, as you say it, that that is maybe a little too extreme for a premise. But you can also see how the DNA of that idea does make its way into the movie. Sorry, DNA, sperm, maybe that's, uh, no pun intended, I assure you. But you know, that that's the sort of thing about it is you have to be willing as an artist to kind of go beyond the boundary of what's traditionally done, especially in the action genre, to be able to give people really authentic surprises and something that feels fresh and new. Something else that would have been fresh and new, Eric Blakeney. When we first started talking about the story, George had a big thing that a certain kind of cancer makes having sex incredibly painful for a man. We were talking about the development of Nux and his romance with this girl in the truck, and George wanted to do a scene where she wants to have sex with him, but it's too painful and he can't. And I said, George, that's not going to work. I don't think we can show him whining that it hurts his winky too much. <laughs> yeah, again, you know, uh, 
the first of all, the fact that <laughs> the fact that that's even coming up in the brainstorming process, I guarantee you nobody working on a Fast and Furious movie is having those conversations. Also, I do think that points to the fact that George has this really untraditional background. He started as a doctor, like you said, you know, not as a filmmaker. It became his second and then his all-consuming career. But so he comes to movies from a very different path from these guys who were living and breathing film and, and knew that's what they wanted to do and worked in video stores like Tarantino. You know, he comes to it with a different set of interests. And that's why for as outlandish as something uh, like Fury Road is or the Mad Max franchise in general, there always is some sort of like surprising reality to it, you know? Those cars, how they flip, uh, all of that stuff, or or even, you know, Max being this uh, hood ornament uh, that is a, a blood donor. They're outrageous things, but they're things that could actually happen. You know, the physics of it, the ideas of it, they push things, but there's a reality. And I think that's why they land so well. A couple more, and this is the one that everyone asks. Even if you don't like the film, you do love the guitar player. How they come yes. up with this idea of the guy playing the guitar in the midst of all this frenetic action? I remember the very first time that I saw the movie, I was pretty blown away from the jump. But when I saw the guy shredding on guitar and the flames shooting out of the top of that guitar, I think my jaw literally dropped. I think maybe that's the only time I've watched a movie and I felt the literal sensation of my jaw dropping because that is one of those images where you're like, okay, this movie is going to push it. it. This movie is going to be extreme and out there in a way that I think most other movies just simply wouldn't dare to be. And, you know, the, the idea that they had for that guitar player is that he's sort of like, you know, the bugler uh, in an old-fashioned army who's getting the troops hyped, who's leading them into battle. But of course, of course, if it's Mad Max, their equivalent of the bugler would be a guy in a red onesie shooting flames out of his electric guitar. It's madness, but that's why it works. And for a film with not a lot of dialogue, there's still some great moments of dialogue. The one scene where the Lord Emperor gets mad, overrated. And then the scene where the guy goes, I had a little brother, and he was perfect in every way. Like, I mean, I love that. That's, that's a, I'm surprised I don't see that more often. Like, that should be a meme. That should be on shirts. Like, that's a great scene. You know, it's an interesting thing because there is so little dialogue that I think the dialogue that you do get, you really seize upon. And so some of these lines, which feel like throwaway lines or really weird, you know, I, I talked to people who worked on set and they, you know, something like Immortan Joe saying mediocre, they would kind of <laughs> laugh about it like what a weird word or reply for him to say. But of course, yes, then it does go on to become iconic because even though there's not that much dialogue in it, you do get becomes more profound and more meaningful. And honestly, I think that has a lot to do with the actors because they sometimes felt a little adrift. They weren't getting conventional monologues. Uh, they, in fact, brought on uh, the writer Kelly Marcel to script, you know, more conventional, long dialogue scenes and monologues that didn't get used because it's not that type of movie, but helped those actors kind of get their heads around what they wanted to say, what they meant to say. And they could pack all of that sometimes into just a brief line. Two things that came away from reading the book. One, I want to go rent at a theater and watch it again. And yeah. two, when are we going to get Furiosa? Yeah, well, okay. So on number one, uh, you know, I watched the film again on the big screen at the Alamo Draft House. I did a Q&A afterwards. And I really don't get tired of watching this movie. I mean, I watched it obviously a million times before the book, while writing the book. But when you watch this on the big screen, there is nothing better. If you ever have, you know, a repertory theater or someplace near you, playing it on the big screen, go watch, especially for people who've come to the movie since 2015 and maybe never got to see it on the big screen. There is nothing better. And I, I do think that because it's so good, it sells the idea of Furiosa as a movie that you have to see in the theater. You know, uh, they're on track right now to shoot Furiosa. It's cast up. They have Anya Taylor-Joy playing young Furiosa. Chris Hemsworth is playing the villain. There have been delays. It wouldn't be a George Miller blockbuster movie if there weren't, you know, five million headwinds uh, making it tricky to make. But I do have full faith. I know that, you know, they've done all of the concept work. They've built the vehicles. They're ready to shoot this year. And I hope that they do because, you know, George isn't getting any younger, but he has an incredible eye and sensibility. And he is at an age where he 
grew up doing this for real. I mean, you know, the very first Mad Max was a guerrilla production where they really, you know, uh, push the boundaries of what you can get away with because they didn't know what the boundaries were. And I do think that that's an increasingly rare breed of filmmakers simply because filmmakers who get the keys to the kingdom to make big action movies now, they're being raised on CGI. They're being raised in, we'll do that on green screen. And, and Miller is still of the stripe of knowing what you can get away with if you do it for real. So hopefully they shoot this year, maybe 2024, we get to see Furiosa? That's the intention. That's the intention. And we'll see. I mean, it, you, as you know, if, you, if you've if you read the book, it got delayed a million times. It got delayed even while they were shooting it. And then the post-production uh, took quite a long time. He's, you know, a very specific filmmaker. And he has that mindset even in post-production of, you know, he wants to get everything perfect. So it will take some time. I hope he's not rushed, even though... You know, selfishly, I can't wait to see it. Kyle Buchanan, pop culture reporter, serves as the projectionist, the award season columnist for the New York Times, been named Journalist of the Year by the National Arts and Entertainment Journalism Awards, and previously served as a senior editor of Vulture, New York Magazine's entertainment website, where he covered the movie industry, a native of Southern California who lives in Los Angeles, and he's written a phenomenal book, Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, the wild and true story of Mad Max for Road. Kyle, phenomenal job. Thank you for the time for the interview, and thanks for a hell of a book. Thanks for having me. All right, thank you so much to Kyle Buchanan. He was awesome. Blood, Sweat, and Chrome, the wild and true story of Mad Max Fury Road. Thank you just so much to everybody for listening. Hockey playoffs starting next week. Best of luck to Chris Cody and, of course, Roy. Let's go Panthers. Florida Panthers, again, we're recording this on a Monday. I was here at work last night, 13-game winning streak, and they lose to the Lightning. Every hockey fan wants to see Panthers, Lightning, Sunshine State, the center of the is hockey that, universe. Is that the narrative? I am always wondering how, like, the, the national audience perceives the Panthers. Like, people, so, like, you're, people at the NHL network are like liking this Panthers team like if the Panthers make the finals people yes. are going to be like this is fun well obviously they want to see the Eastern Conference finals first I don't know if they, would they meet before I haven't looked at it will they meet before the finals yeah theoretically it would be Panthers and Lightning both in the Eastern Conference so that would be I think the best match of the playoffs that they can face no, but like I, I was thinking like couldn't they meet in the second round or like oh do, well, uh, they... that could theoretically happen yeah because Florida right now is a one seed Tampa is going to be they're going to be facing the Leafs in the first round so yeah it could actually face in the second round which is annoying mm. you want them to face in the Eastern Conference Finals, yeah. but but, uh, but 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 overall, you're, the Panthers are a team that they're like the Chiefs, right? They're a fun high offense. scoring. That's about, it comes down to that high scoring, right? This team, 13 game winning streak, scoring five goals a game. People love Huberto. He might win the Hart Trophy. I think Austin Matthews is going to win, but if Huberto wins the Art Ross, he might actually win the Hart. I love Giroux, of course, former Flyer. I want to see him get a cup. Um, Bobrovsky, former Flyer. Like there's there's definitely a lot of players you can root for on that team. Barkov's great. Uh, people are pretty Duclair, excited for Florida. Duclair's yeah. had a good year. Duclair's yeah. had a great year. Like I think I think people are kind of tired of Tampa, right? Hey, you've won back-to-back cups. Let's see Florida make a deep run. And as you know, they haven't done anything since the mid-90s. So a good yeah. run for all the Scott Melman fans up there. I'm excited. Hockey Season ticket holder. Up. I'll be at all of them. Yeah, you're going to be locked in. Um, like I said, there's lots of good movies out there. So next week, I'll be either going to review The Northman or the new Nicolas Cage movie. As far as the old is concerned, High Anxiety, classic Mel Brooks movie. We'll do that next time. Thanks, as always, to Chris Cody. I'm glad he enjoyed his cruise. Thank you to all of you for listening. And I'll see you next time at the movies. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.